Lord, on a cold uh, Sunday morning, both physically and perhaps even spiritually for some today, I, I pray, God, that we would be warmed by the gospel today. I pray, God, as we look at a difficult topic, that we would see Jesus, that we would see the forgiveness that he offers, that we would see the hope that is in him and him alone. So, Lord, I pray as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, God, would you give us by your spirit understanding? Would you open our hearts up? And God, encourage us, exhort us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The idea of correction or discipline is uncomfortable for most people. This, la this last week, my wife and I, we've been uh, painting various rooms uh, within our house uh, during the evenings. And Lindsay is a pretty good painter. Uh, I, for one, I've decided to dedicate myself to other things in this life. And uh, in fact, this is only the second time in our marriage that I've been allowed to paint inside our own home. Uh, the first time happened in our first year of marriage where after a few minutes, I was politely asked to put down the paintbrush and go do something else. So some 10 years later, uh, Lindsay has decided to give me a second chance. And so throughout this week, I have tried to be as careful as possible. I did not want to blow another opportunity, but admittedly, uh, I, I was a little too aggressive this week with my painting. I, I want to get things done as quickly as possible. And, uh, and so things got a little bit messy. Paint got where it should not have gotten. It was on the carpet. It was on the counter. And of course, Lindsay saw it. She sees everything. So what did she do in those moments? Well, she corrected me. Lindsay not only pointed out my errors, she not only explained to me how to clean up the paint, but she persuasively encouraged me to slow down and to be more careful. Now, I would love to stand up here this morning as your pastor and say that I warmly received her correction. I would love to say that I delighted in her pointing out my errors, but that simply was not the case. We had a lot of um, interesting marital discussions this week as we were trying to do something together. Now, why? Why was that the case? It's because correction is uncomfortable. And while most of us are comfortable with the idea of self-discipline, the bringing ourselves into line with a certain standard in order to accomplish a long-term goal like weight loss or exercise or completing a degree, the idea of being disciplined or corrected by an external force, someone or something outside of ourselves, is very uncomfortable for us. Lots of different reasons for this, but one reason uh, has been pointed out by Jonathan Lehman, who's written an excellent book on church discipline. He says this is because of rampant individualism. This is what he says. He says, for the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents, and every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, whether we are dealing with the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, or of course, the local church. I am principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I retain power to veto everything. I think that correction and discipline are uncomfortable for us because we live in a culture that not only values individualism, but it values tolerance. 
It values inclusion. It values acceptance at all cost. And so the very idea of, of correction and discipline are, are almost antithetical to what it means to be human today, right? Because if you correct me, if you discipline me, that must mean that you don't love me, right? That, that's, that's the culture that we're swimming in. So when we as followers of Jesus come across a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, this can make us feel uncomfortable, that we've been taught all throughout the week in the world that this idea of correction and discipline is not in your favor. And while we may never be comfortable with correction or discipline, my prayer has been that we would today, through the power of God's word, see how vitally important it is for the church to practice biblical and loving correction and discipline. I know that this is a tough subject. This is something that is not popular today. But as we walk through this passage this morning, I'm praying that God would give us eyes to see the importance of church discipline and church correction. So let's walk through this together. The first thing I want to point out in these first two verses are the, is the alarming report that Paul receives. What we've seen in chapters one through four so far is that Paul has laid a theological foundation for unity in the church. Paul is now beginning to address specific lifestyle issues within this church that have disrupted their unity. And the first specific issue that Paul begins to address is sexual immorality, something that he will address both in chapters five and six. If you notice in verse one, Paul was given a report of sexual immorality among them. Now that's concerning, but what's even more disturbing about this is that it's a type of sexual immorality that not even the pagans, not even the non-Christians would accept. And the specific issue here, it appears to be incest, that a man is, is sexually involved with his father's wife. Now what's most likely going on here is that a man is sleeping with his father's uh, with his stepmother. Now, this sin is egregious, it is unthinkable, and it is very harmful to the glory of God and to the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul will address how to handle this situation in a moment. But part of the report that's given to Paul that is extremely alarming is in verse 2a, that the Corinthians are arrogant about this. Now, this word arrogant is the same word that we saw in last week's passage that could be translated to be puffed up or to be prideful, that the Corinthians are bragging either because this man is sleeping with his stepmother or the church at Corinth here are arrogant despite this man sleeping with his stepmother. So they're, they're arrogant, even though they've got all kinds of sexual morality in this church. Nevertheless, the evidence here is of a sinful symptom of sexual immorality is being driven and caused by the root issue of pride. And pride is one of the most destructive root issues that we can possibly have in our own hearts. That sometimes when we're trying to grow, sometimes when we're trying to address different sin issues within our own lives, sometimes we only address the symptoms. We don't go deep enough 
to identify the root issue that's producing all kinds of symptoms in our lives. And pride is incredibly destructive because it produces various symptoms. And we're going to see that throughout this church, throughout 1 Corinthians. Now, uh, this is the report that Paul is given. Now, notice uh, the type of response that Paul wants this church to have. How should the church respond to this kind of sexual immorality? Well, with Paul's response here, I see three different aspects of what he wants them to do. The first one here comes in verse two, where Paul says, instead of you being arrogant, you should have mourned this. This word mourned means to be deeply grieved. It means to be filled with anguish. And this should be the response that you and I should have as it relates to the sin in our own lives, that we should be deeply grieved by sin. In fact, this is really the the normal response of a godly Christian to grieve over the sin that's in our own lives. And yet, that type of response is becoming more and more foreign, isn't it? That even for our own lives, like we've got sin and and sometimes we want to hide it, we want to justify it, we want to blame it on something else or someone else. Maybe we want to address it, but to mourn over our sin, that's becoming more and more foreign. And I think one of the reasons for that is because in our culture, sin has become more and more normalized. That sin that we see in the entertainment world, sin that we see in social media, sin that we see in, in various ways throughout our culture, even in the school system, that sin has not only become normalized, but sin is actually celebrated today. And I think that this is becoming a danger for the people of God when we become so familiar with sin that it numbs us. That for us to become so familiar with it that sin loses its offensiveness towards a holy God. And so one of the things that this passage is going to do for us this morning is it is going to remind us that sin is cosmic treason against a holy God, and it must be grieved. See, there's a danger when we are viewing sin through the lens of the world rather than viewing sin through the lens of Scripture. We become numb to it. We no longer grieve it. Oh, church, let us be a people who are grieving our own sin because we realize that it costs Jesus Christ his own life to pay for it. Let us be a people who say, I want to hate my sin more than the sins of other people who just so happen to sin differently than I do. Let us be a people who grieve over sin. That's the first response that Paul lays out for the Corinthians. But the second response we see in verse two is he tells the Corinthians to remove this individual from among you. Now, among whom? Well, verses four and five make it clear that when the church is assembled, when it gathers together, they are to remove this individual who is living in egregious, unrepentant sin, to remove this person from among them, the church, in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? This seems very unloving. This seems almost unchristian 
to do. Well, this is a reference to church discipline. And and specifically, this is the fourth step of church discipline, whereby the church, under the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, removes an individual who is living in unrepentant, egregious outward sin from the fellowship and the membership of that local church. Now, you might be wondering, fourth step, I don't see any steps in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, the four steps of church discipline are explicitly taught by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18, a passage that we're going to look at in a moment, and is seen being carried out in various New Testament passages. Now, I know when when you hear the phrase church discipline, it has a tendency to provoke various reactions. I know for some, when you hear church discipline, it almost makes you wince. You almost think, man, that, that's old school. Like that's, that's legalism. That's very unloving. Maybe others of us, when you hear church discipline, you say, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. It's biblical. We're commanded to do it. Or maybe others of us, when you hear church discipline, you're just kind of filled with confusion. Like I, I've never heard of church discipline before, let alone that there are four steps. So let me provide a helpful definition of what church discipline is. Uh, Much of this definition is borrowed from Mark Dever's book, What is a Healthy Church? But I think it's really helpful that church discipline is defined this way. It is the church's act of confronting someone's sin and calling them to repent, which if the person doesn't repent, will culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of serious, continual, unrepentant sin. Okay, now Matthew 18 is kind of the go-to passage in looking at church discipline because it is so specific that Jesus lays out four different steps and is helpful because this passage helps to answer the question, what does the church do when specific individuals who claim to be a Christian are not living like a Christian, right? How does the church handle that? Well, here's Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, here's step one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. All right. Now that's a very important first step because sometimes we bypass that first step. Sometimes when we see sin or we've been sinned against, we want to go and tell other people to go and handle it. Or we tell the pastor or an elder or a small group leader instead of you going and approaching the individual, right? Jesus continues. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, here's step two, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, If he refuses to listen to them, here's step three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here's step four, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which meaning a non-Christian. All right, here are four steps that Jesus lays out here. And the key is that the church advances to the next step when the individual who is not repenting is no longer listening. That's the key. When the individual has removed himself from the path of repentance 
and is living like a non-Christian. All right, the church moves to the next step. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that when you look at uh, steps one and two, really every follower of Jesus should be in at least step one. (laughs) Right, Because we're all in process, because we all have sin that we're battling, because we all have blind spots, we all need other brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's a spouse, a friend, a small group member, to be able to point out the sin that's in our lives so that we can repent and follow Jesus better. I just had this happen to me this week by one of my daughters. My daughter looked at me and said, Daddy, you're on your phone too much. <laughs> and it just like was a dagger to my heart. Like, oh, you're so right. Like correction accepted. Thank you very much. And she didn't do it in a disrespectful way, but I did have to check myself. Like if, if I can't receive correction from my own daughter, what does that say about my own heart? And so correction accepted. Now the sin that qualifies to be disciplined over is really any sin, Right, but when it gets to steps three and four, it's most often sin that is outward or visible. It's sin that's egregious, sin that's continual, and sin that is unrepentance. Right? We don't have a list in the New Testament where it's categorizing, okay, these sins are in this category, step one, step two, step three. But the key is if that person who's living in unrepentant sin is no longer listening. Or in our case this morning in 1 Corinthians 5, if the sin is egregious enough to damage the reputation of God and the purity of the church, then immediate action must take place. All right? So this second response that Paul gives the Corinthians is to remove this individual from among them. Here's the third aspect of Paul's clear response. Uh, It's found in verses 9 and 11. Paul not only instructs them to remove this individual from membership and from the fellowship of the church, but Paul instructs them on how to interact with this person outside of the church gathering, right? This is really helpful. Uh, And before I look at verses nine and 11, I do wanna point out that Jesus was known for eating with sinners Jesus was known with hanging out with tax collectors and with non-Christians, according to Luke chapter 15, verse two. All right, that's something that we as a church, we as followers of Jesus are called to do, to evangelize, to share the gospel with unbelievers. But Paul here is telling the Corinthians not to associate with someone who is named a brother and who is actually a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or an abusive person or a drunkard or a dishonest person. Paul says that we are to not even eat with such a person referring to being in close fellowship. Now, I wanna be clear. Paul is not talking about someone who lapses into sin, someone who is battling, someone who's wrestling, someone who's trying to repent. No, we as the church, when that happens, we are to follow Galatians chapter six, verse two, where we're helping to carry those burdens, where we come alongside those individuals who's battling sin, and we are to love and to support them. Rather, Paul is talking about someone whose very identity is actually marked by one or more of these sinful behaviors so that they could actually be labeled 
a greedy person or a drunkard, that this individual is engaging in habitual, continual, unrepentant, sinful behavior, so much so that they have become known for their sin. Paul is not talking about the Christian who is dishonest but repents, or the Christian who gets drunk and repents. Paul is talking about the person, rather, who has these two competing identities, that on one hand, they're known as a brother or sister in Christ, but on the other hand, their behavior identifies them as an unbeliever. All right, so Paul is instructing the genuine Christians here in Corinth to not associate with such people, not even to eat with them. Why? Because these individuals are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, and they are incredibly dangerous. Paul says, don't even associate with them. Now, of course, there are nuances to this. There are dozens of questions that need to be answered, like, what if this individual is a family member? How do you interact with them? But the general principle here is not to associate with them for fear of influence towards you and towards the church. All right, so Paul lays out these three responses to the sin that's going on in Corinth. And if you notice, the majority of this passage is Paul instructing the church and how to respond. He, he barely even talks about the individual who's living in unrepentant sin. I mean, four different times, Paul tells the church to remove this individual from among them. And yet, Paul not only emphasizes how the church should respond, but I find this very helpful that Paul actually shares a clear rationale for why the church should practice church discipline. Because let's be honest, let's kind of, you know, call a spade a spade this morning. Church discipline just sounds so unloving. Like church discipline is not only terribly uncomfortable, but it seems so unchristian. I mean, look at these verses. Verse five, hand him over to Satan. Verse seven, cleanse yourself of this person. Verse 12, judge those inside the church. Verse 13, expel the evil person from among you. I mean, surely the, the most loving thing to, to do is to keep warning the individual, but maintain close fellowship, right? To, to hate the sin, but love the sinner, right? That's kind of our knee-jerk response. And yet notice the rationale for church discipline. Let me point out a couple things here. Number one, the reason why we practice church discipline is to protect the name and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse four with me. Paul encourages this church to remove the individual and says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why bring up the name of Jesus here? Well, it's because as followers of Jesus, we are called to live our lives in a way that represents Jesus to the world around us. And if you call yourself a Christian, you are representing who Jesus is, what he's all about to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family members, to everybody that is associated with you. 
And so part of the purpose of church discipline is to uphold the holy name of Jesus Christ to the world around us when we are not representing Jesus biblically and accurately. All right, now this speaks into what church membership is actually all about. A church membership is not just about us keeping tabs on you. It's not just about you know, tracking our numbers, but church membership is when a group of Christians who are part of a local church, when they hear your testimony, your conversion, you putting your faith in Jesus, you being baptized, can together say that is a credible testimony. That, that, that testimony, putting your faith in Jesus, that is legitimate. Because the reality is anybody, anybody can claim to be a Christian today, right? And so to have a group of Christians, a local church, hear your testimony, see fruit and say, yes, you are one of us, right? So when you become a member, you essentially are a card-carrying Christian who can represent Jesus to the world around you. Now, if you are living in egregious, unrepentant, visible, outward sin, that is putting your testimony in question, right? That, that is actually confusing the world around you, your, your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends, so much so that the church can no longer validate and say that your testimony is credible, that you're acting like a non-Christian. So church discipline is the removal of that card and the removal of you representing Jesus to the world around you. So the name of Jesus is, is so important that God has given us church discipline as a means for protecting this great name when we stumble and when we are not representing him well. I think this is part of the reason why Paul says in verses 12 through 13, why we are to judge those inside the church. Of course, we are to judge those inside the church lovingly and graciously and biblically. We are to use discernment and to hold one another accountable because we are representing Jesus to the world around us. Now, I don't believe that this is contradicting Jesus from Matthew 7, where Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus was saying, he, he wasn't saying that he's against all judging, but he's against hypocritical judging. That he says, why are you pointing out the speck of dust in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? So he's against hypocritical judgment, but not all judgment uh, because of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That we are to judge one another in a spirit of gentleness, not assuming the role as the sin police. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, that we hold one another accountable in love, not gossiping, not tearing others down, because we're representing who Jesus is to the world around us. So that's one reason why we practice church discipline. But secondly, another clear reason for practicing church discipline is that this is actually for the individual's good. If you look at verse five, Paul says, to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So look, the aim of church discipline is not punitive, but it is restorative. We do not practice church discipline out of hatred or out of a sense of shaming somebody, but it is out of love for the goal of restoring their faith. Now, Paul says, delivering the individual over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What he means by that is that the church is to remove the protection, the assurance, and the comfort that comes from being connected with other believers in the church and to put this person out into the world, into the sphere of Satan, to cut this person off from the life-giving support of being connected to a church family and for this person to experience trials and suffering, even loneliness, without the benefits of being connected to a church family with the goal of helping them come to their senses, put to death their own sin and their own flesh and repent of their sins. That, that sin is that serious where we put somebody out outside of the church for them to wake up and realize what they have done. Or at the very least, it's to keep that person's sin from, from spreading within the church, which takes us to the third reason I believe Paul gives to practice church discipline, and that is to protect the purity of the church. Verses six through eight, Paul asks the question, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now here, Paul is using a metaphor here similar to the metaphor that we'll use from time to time, how one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. All right, Paul is saying that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. And what Paul is doing here is he is drawing on the, the feast of the unleavened bread, which was celebrated by God's people in the New Testament. And according to Exodus chapter 12, during this feast, every year, God would command his people to throw out, to cleanse out from their homes all leaven to avoid the danger of infection. All right, so Paul is using this as an illustration to show the Corinthians that allowing this unrepentant individual to remain in their community will contaminate the whole. That sin spreads insidiously in a community until the whole is infected by it. All right, so part of the purpose of church discipline is to protect the purity of the church and to keep the sin from spreading. All right, but that's not the only purpose. The last purpose I wanna point out this morning, number four, is that this is a warning to the rest of the Christians in the local church. And this is a warning specifically not to take sin lightly. Imagine being at the church of Corinth. Imagine hearing this letter being read and, and the tone of Paul, the seriousness and the weight of this kind of falling on the church for them to look around and to be gripped with the grave consequences of sin. 
And that's part of the purpose of church discipline. It's for the rest of the Christians to be reminded not to play with fire, not to take sin lightly, but to take it seriously and to put it to death. Look, church, this is, this is a warning for us today, not to take sin lightly. So I got to ask the question this morning, do you have hidden sin that is lingering in your life today? And could it be that God in his providence has us in 1 Corinthians 5 right now today for you to sit here or listen online and to see the, the weight of sin and the consequences of sin, could it be in God's sovereignty for you to, to hear this message today and for you to be led down the path of repentance because some here today are playing with fire? Could it be the Lord in his grace, not judgment, in his grace, opening your eyes today to seeing the danger of sin and for you to say, today I'm cutting it off and I'm turning and I'm repenting to the Lord. Look, I've got good news for you today. I've got great news for you today. Verse seven, Paul draws our attention to Jesus. I love this. Smack dab in the middle of a passage on church discipline, Paul highlights Jesus Christ. And I love this because of, of Romans chapter two, it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not fear of punishment that leads us to repentance. It's not fear of being found out or the fear of discipline that leads us to repentance. No, it's God's loving kindness, which is most visibly demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ that leads us down the path of repentance. Look at verse seven, where Paul draws our attention to Jesus Christ and calls him the Passover lamb who has already been sacrificed. Paul is referring to the great Passover feast that God's people would celebrate every single year, that they would celebrate and, and remember God's great act of deliverance, of, of freeing them from Egypt and from Pharaoh, where, where on that day, the, the angel of the Lord passed over all of these households who had blood from a lamb that was spotless and was blameless. And they smeared that blood over their doorpost. And the angel of the Lord passed over each and every one of their households. And so God's people every year would celebrate the reality of that by taking their own spot, spotless, blameless lamb and sacrifice that to remember God's act of deliverance. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the great Passover lamb, the true, spotless, blameless, perfectly righteous lamb of God who got up on a cross in our place and smeared his own blood on the cross of Calvary in order to purchase our forgiveness and our own deliverance. That he is drawing our attention in the middle of a passage on church discipline, on sexual morality and all kinds of sin, Paul is wanting us to be reminded of the immense 
forgiveness that can be yours in Christ Jesus. Look, some of you need to hear this this morning, is that there is no sin that is outside the grace of God. There is nothing that you can do that is outside what God's forgiveness can cover. There's no sin too small. There's no sin too big, not your past sin, not your present sin, and not your future sin that God cannot deal with because he already has on the cross of Calvary. And look, my challenge, my charge to you today is to not only deal with hidden sin in your life to avoid coming to a situation like 1 Corinthians 5, but my charge for you today is to believe in the power of the blood of Jesus that you can repent of your sin and experience freedom. That there is nothing that is strong enough. There is nothing that is more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ that will lead you to experiencing freedom and forgiveness in him. Do not look over Jesus in this passage and what Jesus can do in your life today. God, we come to you this morning as people who are needy for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that is hidden from your sight. God, that you know the worst aspects of who we are, and yet you love us in Christ. We thank you for your forgiveness we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, for difficult passages like 1 Corinthians 5 that teaches us to take sin seriously. God, I thank you for the church. Thank you for this family that we get to struggle together in this life of looking more and more like Jesus. Thank you that we get to link arms together as fellow broken men and women who are just as needy as your grace as the person next to us. God, help us as a church to become more holy, more godly, more dependent upon you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.